BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. It's Friday, October 29, and time for this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Well, it was right out of Hollywood that scene yesterday. The president makes a last-minute in-person pitch to Democrats in Congress for his key legislation. Then he flies off to Rome. The Speaker of the House promises his bill will be passed before he walks off the plane. But alas, that was not to be. House progressive Democrats stiffed both the president and the speaker and then left town for a week. And Joe Biden walked off the plane empty handed. Will Democrats ever get their act together or is it too late? In other news, Donald Trump steps up his endorsements for 2022 Republican candidates and vows to maybe even step into the Virginia governor's race. And Rolling Stones reports, thanks to Hunter Walker, that some Republican members of Congress were in touch with organizers of the January 6th insurrection in the days before their assault on the Capitol. Helping us sort it all out on today's roundtable, Hunter Walker himself, founder of the newsletter The Uprising, who broke that big story on Rolling Stones. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Bill. How are you? All right. I can't wait to hear all about it. Gabe Benedetti, national political correspondent for New York Magazine. Hi, Gabe. Welcome back. Hey, Bill. Good to be here. And Addie Baird, a political reporter for BuzzFeed. Very, very busy this week on the Hill. Hi, Addie. Hi, Bill. Okay. So let's start off with all the drama yesterday in Washington. It was hard to follow. As I said, uh, the president came up to the uh, to the Congress. Nancy Pelo- made his pitch. Nancy Pelosi says, we'll deliver by the end of the day. But progressives wouldn't have it. They said, nope, we're not going to vote for that so-called hard infrastructure bill until we know that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema will vote for the, definitely vote for the soft infrastructure bill. They didn't get their confirmation. So the bill, uh, neither bill passed yesterday. And then the progressives turned around and endorsed the president's so-called soft infrastructure bill, which they hadn't before that. And so um, here, first, let's start out. Here's the president making his pitch to Democrats in Congress. No one got everything they wanted, including me. But that's what compromise is. That's consensus. And that's what I ran on. I've long said compromise and consensus are the only way to get big things done in a democracy. So, Addy, you're up there. Who's the winner? Who are the losers out of what happened yesterday? Oh, Oh, what a question! That's I I don't I don't know what I thought you were going to ask about yesterday, but uh, I guess we're all losers. Everyone's losing. Um, <laughs> look, uh, you know this is basically deja vu, right? We had this very similar fight, um, you know, only about a month ago. Uh, but ultimately, um, 
you know, right before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about kind of what the what how you can boil down this hold up, you know, and and ultimately the hold up here is that progressives don't trust Mansion and Cinema, um, and. This also, I think, you know, goes to the question of whether progressives can really wield power. Um, and and so I don't know if you can call them winners or anyone a winner yet. I don't know if you can call anyone a winner before there's been any movement on any <laughs> yeah. legislation. But I do think the very fact that progressives uh, derailed the plan is proof that they are attempting to actually wield power and they could win how's that <laughs> uh, well uh, i mean in fact hunter some people are calling the progressive caucus now sort of the the freedom caucus of the left right <laughs> well i i did a story yesterday i guess uh nancy pelosi dropped by the progressive caucus for a meeting uh yeah. they were having yesterday <laughs> and she was in there for a total of 10 minutes um, they apparently applauded her when she came in, but but she didn't speak, and she left. Um, she left without speaking to reporters. Um, multiple sources uh, told me that she was kicked out, but then said she was quote leaving anyway. Um, her office and a couple people in the caucus were just apoplectic, uh, apoplectic, and and telling me, you know. There's no way she was kicked out of this meeting that multiple sources told me she was kicked out of, but they clearly left the meeting with you know some very clear disagreement. I think Addie's absolutely right. My sources are telling me um, the progressives just don't trust uh, Mansion and Cinema to be behind the larger Build Back Better framework. Um, I think it's clear why they don't trust that because Mansion and Cinema have pointedly not said that they are <laughs> behind the larger framework. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, people may dispute, you know, obviously Pelosi feels like she was quote unquote leaving anyway. And some people feel like uh progressive caucus chair Jayapal sort of kicked her out of that room, but there is some clear disagreement and Jayapal and some of the other progressives are asserting themselves. Um, activists I talk to keep using the phrase, you know, hold the line. Mm-hmm. So G- Gabe, is all of this just sort of um, cinema, right? And uh, a Kabuki theater. I mean, that isn't, is it, would you say it's, absolutely certain that eventually both bills are going to pass in one form or the other? Oh, I don't think it's an absolute certainty, but I'd certainly, if I were uh, silly enough and had not been paying enough attention over the last few years to be a betting man in Washington, I'd say that that would be the way way that this was going. Um, You know, the idea that these progressives are holding the line is a real thing. At the same time, the entire package that we're talking about here is significantly smaller than it was you know, when Biden first rolled it out and to, to significant progressive acclaim a few months ago, specifically because this has been a, a process of significant um, negotiating down with down from their perspective, I should say, and from a mm-hmm. monetary perspective, um, you know, with the centrists, with the moderates. The thing that keeps getting missed here is that, like, for political purposes and because they keep imposing deadlines of course, the the Democrats want to get this passed as quickly as possible. Uh, Biden's approval rating has been sliding. It's making things more difficult in races around the country. Voters want to see things getting done. But there's not actually a deadline to get this stuff done. Biden can do this whenever. It just so happens that the political will appears to be highest right now. 
the thing that is sort of inevitable about it all is that, of course, this was going to be difficult. There's no margin for error in the Senate, and there's a very small margin for error in the House. Uh, so the idea that this is some sort of story about Dems in disarray, as as many have tried to make it, it's true that they don't see eye to eye. That, that much is manifest. It's obvious. Um, it's not obvious that there's any way out of it anytime soon. But yeah, everyone has an interest to get this stuff passed. It's just a question of finding the, uh, you know, the compromise on the margins that's going to be good enough for everyone um, while the rest of the world, you, you know, doesn't doesn't move before the rest of the world moves on to something else. Right. Now, I, I want to get your take, each of you, on the messaging side of this. Uh, and Adi, let's start with you. So uh, the message, <laughs> the image that we've had from the Capitol for the last three weeks is just Democrats in total disarray, total chaos, fighting among each other. Meanwhile, the Republicans are doing nothing, right? They're going to vote against whatever it is, no matter how big it is, no matter what's in it. Uh, aren't the Democrats sort of missing out on the messaging here by pointing the finger at the at the at the Republicans and saying, you know, at least we're for something for childcare, something for pre-K, something for climate change? Republicans are against everything. Well, I, you know, I thought it was interesting, Bill, that you kind of said to Hunter that there is this growing sense that some people have that the progressive caucus is the you know quote unquote freedom caucus of the left and that's something that um that's something that I've talked with you know uh, Jayapal and the former co-chair Pokan a lot um about and they are very resistant to that idea you know and and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a fair comparison at times but essentially their argument is that we want to do things mm -hmm. and the entire point of the freedom caucus is not to do anything i think there's also um you know the fundamental split between it is in so many ways so easy and awesome to be in the minority like you don't have to do anything. <laughs> and so I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, I think you're you're right. Like they could sort of build this messaging into um, we actually want to do things. We actually care, even if it's imperfect, even if it's, uh, you know, less than we aimed for. Like we actually want to do things. But the two issues we run into here are one, that Democrats are horrible at messaging. And the other is that <laughs> I think it's a little hard to sell that message when you have total control of Congress and control of the White House. And functionally, what we've been talking about here is that Democrats don't actually really have full control of the Senate, right? Like if you really only believe that you can get 48 votes, you don't have control of the Senate. But um, that is, I think, also hard to sell to uh, people. Like, that's not really a great um, ad message. <laughs> <laughs> so so right. I don't know, Bill. <laughs> so Hunter, Hunter, I hear you're laughing about the messaging, but let me let me just ask you, ask the same question to you, but add one other element, which is, and I had this conversation last night with uh, Senator Tom Daschle, former Democratic leader of the Senate. <laughs> Who pointed out that if if the bill this bill passes at 1.85 trillion instead of 3.5 trillion, and the hard infrastructure bill passes, and they already passed the pandemic legislation back in February, whenever it was, that that's five trillion dollars in new programs, new spending, more than any other president has ever achieved in the first year of his presidency, and Democrats aren't 
you don't hear that message coming out. You know, I think that, you know, you and Addie are both right to say that, you know, Democrats um, seem to have issues with messaging. Uh, they also, for better or worse, um, seem to have issues with unity relative to the Republican Party. I mean, if we look at, you know, all of the various shocking allegations that happened with Trump and when it came to, you know, even reprimanding him, um, most Republicans were sort of in lockstep with the leader. Um, oh, yeah. And Democrats, you know, we we do not um, see them, <laughs> you know, fo- following that way. Um, there is clear, you know, disarray, if you will, at this moment. There's obviously this disagreement between Pelosi and the Progressive Caucus. There's a lot of frustration with, you know, they're being dubbed Manchinima um, for not really articulating <laughs> what they want. Um, I heard from multiple sources yesterday that, you know, when the Biden White House uh, unleashed this Build Back Better framework, um, you know, they didn't um, tell anybody, <laughs> you know, it sort of surprised everybody <laughs> yesterday morning. So, you know, that's not a great smooth rollout. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think the comparison to the Freedom Caucus is not remotely apt because, you know, as Addie was pointing out, the <laughs> certainly the far right wing of the Republican Party has largely been obstructionist um, right. through now two Democratic presidents. And also they've engaged in things like these election conspiracy theories and, and you know, um, wild, wild attacks on social distancing and Dr. Fauci, things that are really like clearly mm-hmm. harmful to the American public. And whereas this is just a policy disagreement and it's a policy disagreement that, you know, as you alluded to, Bill, is frankly probably going to be resolved. I mean, one of the reporters I love following um, is Bloomberg Senate reporter Stephen Dennis, um, and I enjoy him so much both because he he tends to post really crazy Zillow listings and you do not want to miss this. Um, but he also has these great, like, you know, based on his immense experience on the Hill sort of recaps of, you know, budget fights. Right. And mm-hmm. so, for example, the way he describes this now, and I'm going to, I'm going to shorthand this a bit, but he says, you know, build back better maybe. And this is his review. No, 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 no. Budget moderate, uh, budget immediately trashed. No, no, no. Framework comes. This is where we are. No, no, no. Yes. So, you know, in his review, we're like four no's away from the inevitable yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that will mean that, you know, Biden has passed all those things you said, likely. Um, However, I think part of the messaging issue is that, you know, the Democrats run up against a media that certainly when it comes to Fox and the constellation of dark money funded right wing outlets um, has a very clear bias. And then when I think it comes to the rest of us, you know, we're all keyed up after Trump. We're used to having these giant fights and a policy disagreement over the budget that leads to an an inevitable resolution, you know, just shouldn't necessarily be described in the histrionic terms, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of our era especially given the fact that, you know, progressives wanted $6 trillion and they've now come down to a $1.75 trillion framework. That's compromise. That's not the Freedom Caucus. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Gabe, yeah, I know you're, you're ready to, to leap in. I mean, as the national political reporter, does any of this back and forth have any impact, any consequences beyond the Beltway? Oh, y- yes. In so far as uh, Americans don't like to see their political news dominated by back and forths in Washington. It makes them say, I mean, this is a long time thing, makes people believe, well, DC is not getting anything done. And that usually is bad for the party that's in power. However, to Hunter's point, this is how it works. 
you know, it's very common for us to pretend that history began in 2016 for a number of obvious reasons. But large pieces of legislation take time. Uh, they often look like the party in power is in disarray until it's not. Um, no, 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 yes, is basically how negotiations work on Capitol Hill. And that's why you can see Biden being so frustrated. Yes, his ratings are dipping a bit, obviously, because uh, we're in a position where, um, you know, nothing is happening. There are a million headlines about that fact. Um, but the truth is that behind the scenes, things are happening. And the point that the administration and Democrats keep making is basically as follows. Once this stuff does pass, this essentially being one of the largest social programs ever to pass uh, the United States Congress, ever to be signed by a president, and likely to be the largest climate investment ever right. by the government. Um, then which Americans is still a seat. Yeah, which is still in the bill. I just wanted to point out that $555 billion for climate change is still in this scaled down package. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't want to minimize the fact that this is a disappointment that they haven't been able to get more, that Biden is disappointed, that a lot of Democrats are disappointed. The reality is this would still be hugely uh, consequential for actual human beings. Um, the midterm elections are not for another year. And, uh, you know, a lot's going to happen between now and then. Uh, again, not to minimize the fact that this has taken such a long time, and it obviously is taking a real toll on the president's approval rating, which may, in fact, make it slightly more difficult to pass what he wants to pass. But this is how it works. Right. So, Hunter, the blockbuster story of the week was your story about uh, certain members of Congress uh, in cahoots with some of the organizers of January 6th uh, in the days before January 6th. You stand by your story. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and, you know, let's be clear about what was in there. Um, this was based on extensive conversations I had among other things, um, with two people who were involved in organizing and planning a, that main rally, uh, at the white house ellipse on January 6th, but also some of the events designed to challenge the election that were held around the country. Um, and among other things, I mean, there were a couple big allegations they've made, um, these folks are in communication with the House Select Committee. So first off, I think that's notable because it shows that sort of as the investigation is heating up, um, some of the January 6 organizers are starting to turn on each other a bit. Um, but they also described these briefings where they said members of Congress were helping them pick locations for state rallies um, based on, quote unquote, persuadable senators who they hoped would join the election objection. They also said that, you know, the members and their staffs were helping to kind of strategize um, how the objection would be made, both by soliciting and exchanging um soliciting and exchanging quote-unquote evidence, although obviously we know any of that would have been baseless, um, and also sort of planning programming. So this Ellipse event would essentially be a large roadshow to go with whatever happened on the House floor. Um, and I think that's giving us a new level of detail into the alleged involvement of members of Congress, but it's also true that we have a lot of indication that the members were already involved. I mean, I enjoyed watching people like Mo Brooks and Madison Cawthorn sort of fully deny that, you know, they had any role in any kind of planning when both of them spoke on stage at the Ellipse. And it's kind of like, how did you get there <laughs> if you weren't coordinating yeah. at all? Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's communications director, Nick Dyer, essentially admitted it and, you know, told me she was only involved in planning the objections um, and didn't expect it to turn violent, which is the same thing my sources said. Um, 
I should also note that I'm not just taking these people's word for it. I independently verified that they played this role in the organization of January 6th um, and also obtained separate documentary evidence that they were in contact with both Paul Gosar, who's alleged to have dangled a pardon. He went further than anyone else, according to them, um, and Lauren Boebert on that day. So uh, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, and Lauren Boebert, right, are the ones that you've also Louis, also Louis Gohmert. Oh, um, yes, of course. <laughs> it's a long list. I, I, th- I think that's most right. of it. Andy Biggs. Um, and, and again, so, you know, a couple of these people, there were prior indications they had some degree of involvement. I mean, I, you know, my sources aren't the only one to say this. Ali Alexander, the far-right activist um, who led the protest right outside the Capitol, the so-called quote-unquote wild protest, um, said in a live stream that he's since deleted that um, Brooks, Gosar, and Biggs helped him organize everything and quote, quote unquote came up the idea came up with the idea with him um, he appeared at an event with Gosar one of these state rallies designed to challenge the election uh, and he referred to him as quote my captain hmm well um, so this week I had a chance to interview uh, congressman Adam Schiff who is a member of course of the January 6th committee uh, select committee. Uh, and asked him uh, about this story and what Congress might be doing about it. Uh, here is Congressman Schiff. All of us on the committee, Democrats and Republicans, want to get to the bottom of uh, everyone who had a role in that bloody assault on our Capitol. Uh, and we are not excluding anyone from that uh, that scrutiny, uh, including members of Congress. But that is definitely one of the things that January 6th uh, Select Committee will be looking at. Oh, absolutely. So, Addy, what do you uh, hear among other Republican members of Congress Um is there any kind of feeling that these these this handful that uh, Hunter mentioned might have gone too far? You know, I haven't asked Republican members specifically about that, but I think it goes back to actually the conversation that we were just having, which is that Republicans, you know, relative to Democrats, are very unified and very oh, united. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, we all remember the very recent goings on with what happened with Liz Cheney, um, who was literally just rejected, like ripped out of Republican leadership for essentially saying, I'm not going to lie about what happened in the election. Um, So I would be gobsmacked if there were Republican members willing to say, uh, you know, Andy Biggs has gone too far. Hmm. <laughs> this time, Andy Biggs has crossed the line. <laughs> so, Gabe, where do we go from here? I guess I, I, it, it's, it seems that more and more um, it gets down to, uh, let's say, that the committee finds that 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 these members were uh, in touch with the organizers beforehand. It's still. Isn't it all land in the hands of Merrick in the lap, maybe, of Merrick Garland, Gabe, as to whether or not he'll pursue criminal charges? Sure, that's absolutely part of it. And I think that there are a lot of uh, Democrats who are very nervous about that, potentially uh, worrying that, you know, he and others in the Biden administration seem eager to move on. At the same time, the fact that Biden has not uh, used executive privilege to stop Trump-era documents from being uh, looked into suggests that he is actually very serious about this uh, and that his administration will be. The question of where we go from here is obviously one better suited for Adam Schiff than for myself. Uh, but but I do think that, 
you know, the obvious goal at this point is to expose as much of this as possible. Um, they're trying to do that within the committee. Obviously, the committee members are uh, looking very closely at reporting like hunters. You know, the idea being the more uh, evidence there is that there was real coordination between members of Congress or people in the president's inner circle uh, and the planners of all this, that this was premeditated, the more that makes their point. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know if they're going to come out with one report that says, here are the bad guys. Uh, I don't know if there are going to be a ton of, uh, you know, prosecutions based on off of all of this. But for right now, it seems very clear that one of their main goals is to put it all out there and expose uh, the sheer amount of, of um, coordination and of planning here, specifically because they want to make the case that people who are, who are uh, you know, on this side of the investigation, at least the people who are hoping to, for this outcome, um, that, that they want to make the case for people to understand in the public that this was not just a freak outcome, a freak accident, and that, you know, something real significant and planned uh, happened here. And they want that to be in the public domain. Okay. So this is officially an off year uh, politics wise, but it's really not. There are a couple of big governor's races coming up uh, next week, a big mayor's race in New York coming up next week. And Donald Trump uh, is out there endorsing candidates right and left. Well, really all on the right, of course. Uh, let's get into that after a quick break here on the Bill Press, uh, Bill Press Roundtable today. And we'll be back with our panel, Hunter Walker from The Uprising, Gabe Benedetti, New York Magazine, and Eddie Baird from BuzzFeed News. And today's podcast, today's roundtable, Reporters Roundtable, is brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, good members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. Uh, they're the good people that serve us in our great retail stores like um, Macy's and Nordstrom's, our big grocery chains, uh, Safeway and all the rest, our, uh, who uh, take care of our chemical plants, meat and poultry pro uh, processing plants, and our cannabis plants, the members of the UFCW. We thank them for their great support, their great service, and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's Reporters Roundtable. Joining us, Addie Baird, political reporter for BuzzFeed News, Gabe DiBenedetti, national political correspondent for New York Magazine, and Hunter Walker, founder of his own newsletter, The Uprising, and contributor to Rolling Stones, Donald Trump. Uh, he hasn't entirely gone away. He surfaced uh, this week on the page, op-ed page, of the Wall Street Journal with a letter to the editor in which he repeated his claims that, of course, the 2020 election was stolen from him, particularly in the state of Pennsylvania. Hunter, should the Wall Street Journal have published that uh, letter? So, you know, it's interesting. I actually, on my own little Substack newsletter, um, found myself in a similar 
dilemma. <laughs> a uh -huh. few, a few did he write ago. to you? Yes, he did. <laughs> um, <laughs> where essentially uh, Donald Trump had issued this statement um, saying, you know, newspapers and media organizations always add the phrase, quote unquote, without evidence when they refer to my uh, claims of election fraud. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence. So I emailed his office and I said, hey, can you show me the evidence? And I got back like a 900 word essentially letter from Trump um, detailing what he saw as the specific proof um, of election fraud. Um, and you can see the story on the uprising. Uh, I, I called it going down the big lie rabbit hole with President Trump. Um, and I essentially went through it and found that out of every claim he made, none of them stood up. They were all false. Um, but more importantly, all of them originated in what I was calling the um, election conspiracy theory industrial complex. And this is essentially a feedback loop between Republican politicians uh, at, at all levels, from Rand Paul on down to the state level, um, conservative dark money funded activist groups, dark money funded media outlets, uh, I use that term <laughs> loosely, mm -hmm. such as the Federalist, the Daily Caller, and then, you know, Fox News and the president himself. And with each of these claims that I was able to trace, they originated in some combination of one of those places and then spread throughout the others. And, you know, I am not of this um, philosophy we see from some that we should ignore President Trump. Um, you know, he commands uh, great attention um, and loyalty over um, a good portion of the Republican Party, as we've sort of been noting throughout this show. Um, and he's also making these damaging claims. So we have to confront that and we have to analyze that. But we can't do what the Wall Street Journal did and just uncritically repeat it. Uh, we really well, have to talk about this as a organized conspiracy theory, as an organized misinformation drive, uh, and not simply as some kind of normal letter to the editor. Uh, yeah, uh, Addy, on, on that point, on Hunter's point, the Wall Street Journal just put it up. They didn't say this is bullshit. What they said was, we trust our readers. They said, uh, after they, were, you know, they got all the criticism, uh, we trust our readers to make up their own minds. I mean, that's kind of lame. Huh? Yeah, that is really <laughs> um, a silly way to look at it. Hunter is absolutely right. Um, it is dangerous for us to ignore what Trump is doing. It's dangerous for us to ignore the fact that he is out here, like you noted, making endorsements and <clears throat> writing crazy letters. And it's dangerous to ignore it because he has an enormous base of followers who love him. And more importantly, those people uh, are the base for all of these Republicans in Congress that we're talking about. And so to ignore Trump is functionally to ignore um, the power center of the Republican Party. But of course, Hunter is also right. Like you cannot just uncritically run uh, lies in your opinion section. Um, and so that is certainly the balance. And basically, the idea that the Wall Street Journal is just going to trust their readers to know the truth. Um, I, I think I work at BuzzFeed. I think we have smart readers. I think the Wall Street Journal readers are also probably generally pretty smart. 
But the point of journalism is to like help people understand the world around them. And it's a very antiquated idea of journalism that um, there's no analysis that should come with it. There's no fact checking that should come with it. Like that's not even that is that is I mean, that's that's actually not even quite the antiquated idea of journalism. Right. Like mm. <laughs> the, the very fact that calling out the truth, like fact checking, pointing out lies um, is sort of the entire point of what we do. So, yeah. yeah. I'm with Hunter. I think it's it was a bad decision. <laughs> uh, I just have to say, as a columnist, uh, for syndicated columnist for several years now, I mean, uh, there is every single line in my column is checked by an editor and fact checked, and I'm called on it if they're not if I don't can't reveal my sources, and they may not agree with my conclusion, but the facts. The facts, they're very, very strict on that, as they are for any any columnist, uh, anybody else but Donald Trump, I think, on the right or on the left. Uh, uh, but, Gabe, I want to take this one step further. There are other consequences. Uh, as Hunter and, and, and Eddie pointed out, this is all sort of a part of a loop. But the, um, re, the re- repetition of and the broadcast of this and over and over again of this same lie can lead to some very serious consequences. The president talked about Pennsylvania. Here is an election official, sorry, don't know his name, from Philadelphia talking about what happened to him and his family because he refused to recount or to at least say if this is a fraudulent election. Election official, Philadelphia. I am a Republican, and I believe that counting votes in our democracy is a sacred responsibility. For doing my job, counting votes, I'd like to quickly share with you some of the messages sent to me and my family. Tell the truth or your three kids will be fatally shot. Included our address, included my children's names, included a picture of our home. Heads on spikes, treasonous schmitz. You're a traitor. Perhaps cuts and bullets will soon arrive at, provides my address, names my children, rhino stole election, we steal lives. So, Gabe, uh, serious consequences. Congressman Eric Swalwell, of course, released some uh, threatening phone calls that he received to his office as well. Uh, this is serious stuff, Gabe. Not only is it serious stuff in Philadelphia and, and in California where Eric Swalwell, uh, the, the district that he represents, this is happening everywhere. Um, we've seen this for, for over a year now, uh, and it doesn't really behoove any of us to pretend that it's not happening, um, which is certainly the point that a lot of Republicans have been making or the case that they've been making. Uh, but I think to the the, the, the the conversation that we were just having um, it fits in perfectly with this, which is that Donald Trump uh, is obviously the progenitor of this lie. Uh, but he is going out there and trying to, well, is endorsing candidates um, in the upcoming midterm elections, in the in the elections that are happening next week. Um, and by all accounts, the most important uh, factor in Republican primaries around the country is, do you have Donald Trump's endorsement? And in order to get Donald Trump's endorsement, by all accounts, you need mm-hmm. to accept and campaign on the, this lie. Uh, it's basically impossible to not. So it's becoming table stakes to be a Republican right now to uh, accept basically that, um, you know, that the 2020 election was stolen, which is, of course, not true. Uh, And that essentially feeds into this violent uh, and dangerous line of thinking all around the country. The really scary part is that there are very few uh, prominent adults 
in the Republican Party who can say anything about it. But but I want to be very clear. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Not after anything that has happened over the last half decade. Um, this is depressing. This is scary. Uh, it needs to stop. But I don't I haven't been given any reason to believe that it will anytime soon. So you mentioned uh, Donald Trump's endorsements. Let's talk particularly where we know at least two, maybe the most prominent cases were Herschel Walker in Georgia and Sean Parnell in uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, but the last time uh, Donald Trump endorsed were two Senate candidates, Republican Senate candidates in Georgia, both of whom lost. So what do we? What should we think about Donald Trump's coattails, Hunter? Does he have any? You know, I think it's interesting to note, I mean, I thought of this in conjunction with the Rolling Stones story, you know, as they were allegedly plotting out the objections uh, to the electoral certification, they initially didn't have a senator on board, which you need for an official objection. Uh, They ultimately got to, I think, 120 some odd members of the House, depending on the state, um, and six or so, a handful of senators. But I think it's telling that senators who represent statewide constituencies, you know, were more reluctant to get on board with this um, than members of Congress, uh, who, you know, in many cases, certainly uh, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene have deep, deep red districts. And so I think that's a stark illustration of kind of the limitations of the most extreme conspiratorial uh, part of the Trump agenda. Uh, That being said, I think the most notable feature of the president's um, campaign apparatus right now is that he and his supporters are getting involved in increasingly uh, hyper-local contests, and specifically ones that involve election administration. And this is sort of a lower-profile effort. These are typically very low-profile races, but that also means they're easy to sway. And that could be the most consequential thing he's doing. I mean, forget Mm. who becomes governor of Virginia. If a bunch of sort of you know, January 6th election dead enders end up becoming, you know, secretary of states or, or getting spots on election boards. Um, the actual results next year, next, you know, in 2024 could be under threat once again in a much more organized capacity. And, and Addy, we saw an example of this in the Senate this week with where uh, Mitch McConnell had previously expressed a lot of doubts about Herschel Walker in Georgia. You know, he has no experience, no elective experience, no political experience. Uh, uh, he's got, there's some questions certainly about his personal life. Uh, and then Donald Trump endorsed uh, Walker and suddenly McConnell just caved basically and said, okay, if you like him, I like him. Yeah. I mean, we, we've sort of hit on this note a few times already this morning, but, um, you know, there was a conversation around the election Um, You know, once it became clear to all of us, people who believe facts uh, that Donald Trump had lost, that was basically what kind of influence is Trump going to have on the party? And there was this was a live question. Um, And it was answered very quickly, I think. Right. It's very clear that Trump is still the center of this party. And that is because the base loves him and they will turn against anyone who turns against him, um, including Mitch McConnell. And it's just really amazing to watch the way that he continues to wield this power without, you know, elected office, without a Twitter account, without, <laughs> you know, any any real hard power. The, the soft power that he retains is mm-hmm. enough to keep the uh, 
Republican leader in line. Yeah, it's sort of a, the rule now is he, de- he decides who the candidate's going to be, and the Republican Party says, okay, uh, that's who we'll go with, that's who we will back. Uh, speaking of some particular races, two big races next week on November 2nd. New York's going to elect a new mayor. Gabe, you live in New York. Uh, Eric Adams or Curtis Sliwa? Is there uh, any <laughs> doubt? <laughs> I'm biting um, my don't... nails here. <laughs> yeah, I, you can keep biting, uh, Bill. No, there's no doubt. Eric, Eric Adams will be the next mayor of New York. He is the Democratic nominee. Um, I will say, if that's not true, uh, you know, let's let's talk next week. That would be uh, a pretty enormous <laughs> earthquake, but that's all we have to say about that. Uh, the, the other question I have about Curtis Sliwa is, I read he has now. I love animals, but he has sixteen cats in a he and his wife in a three hundred and twenty square foot apartment. Well, I think the actual really? number of cats is disputed, actually, Bill. So it's been growing as he's been talking about it more. So oh, uh, uh-huh. I'm not a cat truther here, but uh, <laughs> I think we've already talked more about Curtis Lewa than uh, than we will in the next. 30, 50 years. Well, you, right. you know, both these guys are very eccentric, and Curtis That's true. Was, yes. is actually known as the founder of this vigilante organization, the Guardian Angels. Uh, mm-hmm. And he and his people are known for, you know, this came up in the crime wave of the 80s, sort of patrolling the trains in their red satin jackets and red beret. And my favorite Curtis Lewa factoid, um, the beret has become such a trademark for him that it's essentially glued to his head. And at one or two points in this quixotic campaign he's been running in a heavily democratic city, he took the beret off. And you can actually see that Curtis has a very deep beret tan line on his forehead and has essentially a two-colored head. Um, and I really encourage any of your listeners to Google this um, and enjoy this photo as I did uh, to, to see the literal colorful world of New York politics. Uh, okay, and meanwhile, Addy, across the river, Virginia, uh, people were saying uh, a few years ago, this has finally become a blue state. Now Terry McAuliffe running for re-election, Glenn Youngkin, Republican candidate, and according to uh, the 538 latest poll, it's an absolute tie between the two candidates. What's going on? What's going to happen? Bill, I knew you were going to ask me this one because <laughs> I Go remember, I remember, this is kind of crazy. Four years ago, back in the old radio studio, there was another Virginia governor's race, and you asked me who was going to win. And I said, Bill, I know better than for, to, for, to try and predict elections. <laughs> And, At least um, I'm consistent. <laughs> yeah, right. And and I will say I know better than to try and predict elections. What but, is your, what's your um, But well, you know, I, I've been thinking that one of the things I, I do find interesting is uh, obviously the Virginia governor's race happens in the off year, and you know we have all this we put all this meaning on it, right? Like it's this referendum yeah. on who's in the White House, and most of the time the party in the White House, the other party wins the Virginia governor's mansion. Uh, and one of the only exceptions to this is Terry McAuliffe. Yep. Um, so I I think that it is, my gut tells me I think this is going to be, I think Terry McAuliffe is going to pull off this little magic trick once again. Um, I think he has, uh, you know, a, a real base of support in Virginia. He has obviously a lot of history there. He is the most enthusiastic man you will ever meet in your entire life. Uh, and um, 
you know, Youngkin is a newcomer. He isn't really established in the state in the same way. Um, so, you know, if if he wins, I, I hope I'm not <laughs> on the show to <laughs> walk this one back. But, but that's that's sort of my feeling here. But Gabe, one of the issues seems to be the enthusiasm gap, right? People are saying that, you know, Democrats feel, well, Trump is gone. It's not that, that important to get out and, and vote, you know, anymore. Uh, that's certainly what the McAuliffe campaign has been worried about. And it's why, not to bring you back to the one topic here, but that's why Terry McAuliffe keeps talking about Donald Trump, which is, of course, a tried and true way to get Democrats excited. Um, I think one thing that's important to remember is that it's not as if Terry McAuliffe is some sort of magician. First off, he hasn't been governor for the last four years. Ralph Northam has been, who is his deputy. Uh, and so he sort of has to def- he has to defend the Northam uh, legacy, which is a difficult thing to do, and make the case that he should be reinstalled. When he won in 2013, uh, he got less than 50 percent of the vote and barely won. There was a third party libertarian candidate who got a significant chunk of the vote. That's not really going to be the case this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has been going out there trying to essentially say Glenn Youngkin is endorsed by Donald Trump. Donald Trump wants to come to Virginia. Uh, Glenn Youngkin is, you know, an election uh, conspiracy theorist. Th- this is all a harder, harder case to make than it has been in a lot of other places, partially because Youngkin has tried to distance himself from Trump uh, with some success, but he's also contorted himself quite a bit on that front. Trump the other day said, I'll see you soon in Virginia, uh, and then seemed to walk it back. So it's unclear how he's actually uh, going to be playing here in the final days. Uh, there's no doubt, however, that that Democrats are more worried than Republicans are right now because it does look like, after all the talk of Virginia becoming at least a very blue-tinted purple state, um, this this one could really go the other way. Are we putting too much importance on Virginia, Hunter? I mean, you know, it, it's, as you pointed out, kind of an off cycle. I do think we tend to kind of, you know, expound um, on, on races as though all of them have national import. I mean, I remember when Adams, uh, in New York, you know, won that primary in a very crowded field, you know, all sorts of people at the national level were extrapolating what this meant for the Biden agenda. And, and frankly, Eric Adams is, is a fairly eccentric guy whose, you know, major policy position prior to this election was being a vegan. Um, you know, in, in except in, for that salmon in the fridge in the house where he definitely lives, Addy. This is you. You are touching on one of my favorite favorite conspiracy theories, which is that Eric Adams oh, is me actually too. a pescatarian. So we're gonna have to download on that later. Oh. Please don't scoop the uprising. But um, but you know, Virginia. I mean, this is a state that since two thousand eight has looked fairly blue, not overwhelmingly blue. Um, and you know, it's, it's always kind of a tough year, um, in the middle of, of, it's a tough year for a party in the middle of their president's term. So, you know, I don't think Yunkin or McAuliffe, you know, will represent a massive national trend for either party, but I'm almost certain it will get covered that way. Okay. Well, in, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Carol and I are going to be walking precincts for Terry McAuliffe in Alexandria uh, over the weekend. So I think that's going to decide the election. So uh, there you go, guys. Press <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Count on that. Hey, a great big thank you to Gabe DiBenedetti, Addie Baird, and Hunter Walker for looking back on uh, what's happening this week and trying to make some sense of it all. Thank you, guys. And we won't let you go, though. What, fate, what what story really caught your attention this week, made you uh, groan or smile or laugh out loud? Uh, Gabe, let's start with you. 
Sure. Uh, all of the above for this one. There was a, a rather delightful story in the New York Times yesterday um, about you know, it was sort of a cringeworthy topic, actually, what it's like now that Gen Zers are in the workplace and how do millennials handle it? Uh, it's sort of a like classic topic that gets written about every few years. Did you know these young kids have interesting ideas about work? Um, but to me, the reason that I uh, pointed it out is because it's full of really eye-opening anecdotes, and it includes really one of the best paragraphs that I've heard or that I've read in a very long time, which is as follows. Uh, this is a quote. You talk to older people and they're like, dude, we sell tomato sauce. We don't sell politics, said Mr. Kennedy, co-founder of Plant People, a certified B corporation. Quote, then you have young, younger people being like, these are political tomatoes. This is political tomato sauce. Uh, so you can get a sense of uh, that story, which you can roll your eyes at, cry at, laugh at, all the above uh, on The New York Times. As they get back into the work site, right? Indeed. Hunter, how about you? So, you know, uh, as your as your longtime listeners may know, um, I am an absolute lunatic. Um, and one of my hobbies is to keep up on the latest shark news. So I have various <laughs> Google searches and, and alerts uh -huh. I do every week uh -oh. for, for shark news. And, and this week we got an absolutely extraordinary one um, coming out of reports that are getting expanded on with uh, – Oxford University and the University of Kyoto. Um, and back in June, they found a guy in, in this Tsukumo um, archaeological site in Japan. And he is a 3,000-year-old Neolithic, they said archaic huntsman, who was just savaged by a white shark or tiger shark. And um, this is the oldest known evidence of a shark attack. Uh, he had like 790 wounds. Um, and I just find this interesting because there's been, uh, particularly in the Times in the past week or so, um, a lot of sensational coverage of the, the current new migration of great whites um, to the Northeast. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Tsukumo 24, as they called this man, is a nice reminder that, you know, we've been coexisting with sharks for a long time and these attacks still may remain extremely rare. Uh, which doesn't make it any safer to swim around white sharks, but at least it's been going on for a long time. All right, Addie, bring us up with uh, your favorite story of the week. Yes. Um, like Hunter, your longtime listeners may know <laughs> my own freaky obsessions. Um, <laughs> I like to always bring a space story because it makes me feel like all of this is much smaller. Um, so this is actually from a couple weeks ago, but I am obsessed with it. Um, this is a New York Times story. It's based on a uh, article that was in the uh, journal Nature. Um, and basically, astronomers found a planet that survived its star's death. So... Out there, there is a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting a white dwarf, uh, which is like a dead star. And that's what our sun mm. is going to someday be. Um, and it's a it's a fascinating story um, and really raises a lot of questions about, um, you know, can life survive? If, if, if the planet can survive, can life survive? Can life have a second um a second life on a planet orbiting a dead star. Um, and mm. I, I find these questions very fascinating to consider sometimes when I'm thinking too much about Biff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think we'll have to resolve that answer that question in our lifetime, but at any rate, uh, 
it's, it is interesting how uh, regular members of the roundtable, you can now identify them by their favorite stories, right? <laughs> if only we could get uh, some some, <laughs> some, some Matt Gertz in here with some uh, Wall Street Journal <laughs> rich people insanity. <laughs> you, you know, I normally do baseball and I did take note. Um, I, I do baseball in Judaism oh. and I did take note that this is supposedly the most Jewish um, World oh. Series in history. <laughs> but due to the participation of the cheating Houston Astros, I'm not acknowledging it whatsoever. Oh. <laughs> okay. I'm with uh, you, Hunter. All right. Uh, so my favorite story of the week, uh, totally off the wall, but I found this so amusing. We all have cell phones. We all live with our, in, uh, with with and by our cell phones. And one thing I'm sure that I could speak for all four of us uh, that we all do is if we get an incoming call from a number we don't recognize, we don't answer it because oh, after God. all. Well, this story, of course, I know some <laughs> of you know what I'm talking about. Yes. There was a hiker out in Colorado who went off uh, on a long hike in the morning and he did not return that evening. His friends were very, very worried of they should have been uh, feeling he got lost. They notified the authorities and the rescue squad went out looking for this guy. Uh, he spent the night, the next morning they're out looking for him. Finally, he finds, uh, gets, finds the trail again and winds his way back <laughs> to civilization, to his car and there are all these rescue workers there who've been out looking for him. And they had his cell phone and they had called him like eight to ten times. And their first question was, dude, why didn't you answer your phone? And he said, because I didn't recognize the number. <laughs> Duh. That, but, I, you know, I, that's me. I would That would absolutely I, happen to me. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it either, although maybe after eight times I might have figured maybe I should answer this one, <laughs> but at any rate, I thought it was really a sign of the times, right? We've all become accustomed. So, uh, moral of the story is, if you're lost in the wilderness and your phone, your cell phone rings, answer it. Damn. There we go. Somebody's going to hey. get lost in the wilderness and answer the phone and be like, oh my God, thank God. Like, finally someone's here to get me. And they'll be like, this is a call about your car insurance. <laughs> <laughs> or they actually get saved and they say, thank the Bill Press Pod, right, for letting me know about that. <laughs> there we go. Hunter Walker, thank you, Hunter. Great to have you with us. Gabe Benedict, always good to have you back. And Eddie Baird. Thank you so much, Addy, and thank you all for listening. A couple of quick program notes, if you haven't already done so. I did mention Adam Schiff is our guest on the podcast this week uh, that was uh, published on Tuesday. It's a great interview with Adam Schiff about his new book, Midnight in Washington, which is now number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And next week on Tuesday, we'll be talking with investigative reporter Tim Mack from NPR about his big new book called Misfire. It's published next week. It's all about the NRA, which was one of the most powerful lobbyists in Washington and has totally self-imploded. Tim Mack, a great job exposing what happened to the NRA and Ollie North and all those other guys. So uh, don't miss that podcast coming up next Tuesday. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.